Hello, and welcome to episode two of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. It's been a lot of fun to engage with folks about my first episode with Ricardo from the Baseball Heritage Museum. We have listeners in six countries. Thank you so much for the kind words and support. Be sure to share the podcast with folks who you think would be interested. And also, engage with the pod on social media, at HGPod on Twitter and Hallowed Ground Pod on Instagram. I'm hoping to continue to build those accounts as the podcast progresses. Today on the show, we have Justine Kampfer, Museum Programs Assistant at the Packers Hall of Fame in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I met Justine at the 2019 International Sports Heritage Association Conference I mentioned in my teaser episode. In her role with the Packers, she works at the first Hall of Fame built to honor a pro football team. And obviously, the Green Bay Packers have an extremely rich history to preserve. For my overtime segment this week, I'll be taking a deep dive into the life of NFL legend and Super Bowl trophy namesake, Vince Lombardi. Be sure to stay tuned after our interview for some fun facts about the Packers' legendary head coach. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Justine. Today on the show, we have Justine Kampfer, a museum programs assistant for the Packers Hall of Fame in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Justine, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Doing good. So I figured we could start out talking about your um, kind of path to working for the Packers in the Hall of Fame, because you told me earlier you um, took a sports history course as like part of your uh, master's degree at Penn State. I know I would love that. That's right up my alley. Personally, I took a sport in American culture class as an undergrad, really liked it. So love how sports like fit into society. And so can you kind of talk about that class and that degree and then how um, that kind of plays into your role now with the Packers? Yeah, so uh, my sort of path to, to working here at the, the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame is not entirely direct, but I think that's fairly common. So um, when I was looking at colleges for my undergrad, I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which is my hometown. And I was really looking at sports journalism classes, wanted to be a broadcast journalist, then realized, no, I don't want to talk on the TV all the time or the, the radio. And I have to do a little bit of that now. And here with you on this podcast. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just uh, not super my style, but I'm happy to be here today talking with you. And so I ended up being like a history major for a semester and then took an anthropology class, which is kind of a museum adjacent field and really fell in love with that, that study. Um, and, you know, as a kindergartner, I actually wanted to be an archaeologist um, and then ended up wanting to be a primatologist for most of most of my schooling and switched to the journalism kind of like my junior and senior year of high school but ended up in anthropology and sounds kind of like that was the perfect path for me. While I was at UWM I did some uh, undergraduate research and was really focused in archaeology um, and worked in a an osteology lab processing human skeletal remains to uh, help build a demography of that particular cemetery. But kind of when I finished my degree, it was challenging to figure out where I would kind of go from there. It was pretty evident that I'd end up in grad school somewhere. Um, you know, anthropology is very much an academia job. You know, there's some practical elements to it, but it's not necessarily like you know a engineering degree where you get a degree and then you end up as an engineer. You know, there's it's a little less straightforward than that. So um, I took a couple of years off after my undergrad to figure out kind of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to specialize in for grad school. And I really knew that I wanted to do museum work, but when you, you go into a grad program, there's a lot of specialization. And the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where I did my undergrad, has a museum studies certificate program, but you have to kind of major in something else. So anthropology or um, 
history or something like that. And there weren't any sort of specializations or research there that I was particularly interested in. And so when I did start looking more seriously at grad school, I was looking at museum studies or public history programs, as well as sport history and sociology programs. And so I ended up actually getting accepted to Penn State in their history and philosophy of sport program, which is within their kinesiology department, but it's a very lengthy focus on, on history and philosophy of sport. There's a, not very many programs or like entire programs that focus on that. Um, Western Ontario, the University of Iowa, uh, Texas all have some sort of program on that. Um, a lot of times these classes are within a kinesiology or sports management degree, but they don't, it's not an entire program of its own. And when we're talking about the, you know, sport history, it's really a cultural history. So you're looking at a lot of things about how it's institutionalized and how it interplays with culture and society rather than kind of a, a traditional history take on things. And while I was there, I also got to take some classes in tourism management and archive management, which definitely play into what I'm doing today. Um, I was also a TA for uh, our kind of intro level sports philosophy class um, and got to attend and present at some sport history and philosophy of sport conferences, which was really great as a, as a student to be able to make some of those connections. And then really salient to what I'm doing now is I worked as a operations person at the Penn State All Sports Museum, which really helped me connect and network with specifically, you know, sport museum people. And so kind of talking a little bit more about that, that program that I was in, I mean, we were taking, we were doing classes and research in sport, gender and sexuality, or um, sport and, you know, what is the what is America's sport? So, you know, we, we typically think of, of baseball as American as apple pie and baseball. Um, but what are some of the other sports that are, are very American? And how did those come about? Or the origins of sport and what they're really tied to and some of the, the movements. So baseball and football and the Civil War and things like that. So it was a, a very interesting and intensive look at some of those things. And then through the All Sports Museum, I got connected to the International Sports Heritage Association, which is how I, I met you. Um, and so I joined as a student and there weren't and still aren't a ton, ton of students or young professionals that are a part of that organization, but we're always looking for opportunities to outreach to um, you know, younger professionals who are looking to, to network and get into the industry. Um, and my first conference with them was in Nashville. I didn't really know anybody. And so I was just there to kind of make connections and see what it was all about. And so I've been part of that organization now for about five or six years. And then that's actually how I found out about my current position, or at least with the Packers. Um, they had sent out a, information about a collections and curation internship with the Packers Hall of Fame. And it was obviously right up my alley, but also in my home state and for an incredibly historic organization. So it was a really great opportunity. I had met a couple of the Packers Hall of Fame staff when I was at these ISHA conferences and introduced myself. Um, so I applied, interviewed, and, and got the position and started working with our curator, Brent Hensel. Um, and did that for um, not quite a year and a half and really got to help out with some of our exhibits, our temporary exhibits, really helped out with our, our Brett Favre exhibit that we did for him when he got inducted into the 
Pro Football Hall of Fame. We hadn't had a curator um, up to that point. The museum has been around since 1967 in some fashion or another. Um, and so Brent is actually our first full-time curator and you know, developing our archive and things like that. And so I really got to help kind of the baseline organization of our collection space um, and the addition of Past Perfect, which is the cataloging system that uh, a lot of museums use to keep track of their artifacts. And so as a internship, it was a part-time position. So then I ended up volunteering with our public museum, the Neville Public Museum, to um, you know, network with local people in the museum industry, keep busy and, and try and continue to build my resume on my off days. And then, like I said, about a year and a half in, position opened up, um, more permanent position as the programming assistant, which is what I do now with the Hall of Fame and I applied and um, secured this position. And so now a lot of what I do is planning our like specialized tours, our art tours, booking uh, our guest speakers or planning public programs. I also work with our membership program, our educational programs. And then um, I do a lot with our, our marketing efforts and our social media. Luckily we have kind of the power of the Packers organization to help us with those things. But as far as kind of coming up with the content and, and making sure everything gets put through, um, that is kind of falls to me. And then, you know, working with the local museums here, we are a part of the Brown County Federation of History Organizations, which is a, a local museum association. So we've been a part of that since 2017. And I've served there as the secretary, and I'm currently the president of that organization. And then a couple of years ago, I was asked to serve on the board for ISHA. And so um, when it comes to that, I have been the survey committee chair. I am currently on the conference committee and the communications committee, helping out with our, our social media. And then I'm currently serving as the treasurer. So, you know, trying to, to keep up in the industry and and expand kind of the things that I'm doing in my position and make sure that, you know, we at the Packers Hall of Fame are following our mission to really be um, one of the, the premier sport history destinations. Yeah, that, that's awesome, Justine, is hearing your story and um, relating to that in some ways, like really enjoying sports and history and then getting involved in ISHA right away as an undergrad at the conference. Uh, my conference that I went to was in Wichita where I went to school. So I was really fortunate there and uh, meeting you and some of the other folks with Isha was really great. And I've learned throughout talking to you and talking to some other folks is like, sometimes you just have to like jump in and take opportunities, even if they're not exactly what you want to do. And sport management is kind of like that generally, you kind of just have to get in your foot in the door and network and just work really hard. But did you run into any of that where you like took a, took a job and it maybe wasn't exactly what you wanted or I know you you wanted to do journalism initially and then that changed and all of that it's like sport management is in sports in general is like so so broad and it, it's like a blessing and a curse sometimes because there's so many options and then like that makes it uh, easier in some ways but then harder in some ways too so I was wondering like what your thoughts were on that yeah I think you and I kind of discussed at the conference how um, it can be challenging to kind of break into this industry it's a smaller world than you think it is, um, and especially in sports heritage. There's a fair number of organizations, but it's a pretty tight-knit community, and those staffs are fairly small. So it can be challenging to, to break into the industry if it's really something you're passionate about. And so you may have to you know, do things to build your resume. You may have to volunteer um, and not get paid for your time. 
Um, you may have to work operations and do ticket taking and things like that that aren't exactly what you want to be doing and to kind of make those connections and when things open up, take that, take that risk. And, and so, you know, I'm very fortunate to be at a institution that's in my home state and a couple hours from my, my family, but I was fully prepared for that not to be the case um, that, you know, I was just going to apply for a position wherever it opened up and, and take my chance. And so absolutely, there may be times where, you know, you are, are doing things that you didn't think you would be doing in order to, to build an opportunity um, and to, to break into something. Um, but that networking piece and building those connections is incredibly important because it is such a tight knit industry. And especially with ISHA, I mean, ISHA really contains a, a vast majority of institutions here in the United States and in Canada and being able to, to make the connections with the people that work at those museums is hugely important. Definitely. I know I've seen that when I, when I went to the conference and then just even um, conceived the idea of this podcast, I reached out to Isha and like got, got in contact with some of those folks again. And, and they, some of them remembered who I was, which I, I was surprised because I didn't fully remember all of them, but it was really cool to, to get back in touch with them and uh, kind of make those connections. And I think networking is just a huge piece of, of all of this. I know we, it got brought up, your podcast got brought up in one of our board meetings and, you know, our, our president, Dana Hart, was definitely an advocate for saying, you know, this is a great opportunity to help out one of our, our young members. And it's something that we haven't seen before as far as a podcast regarding our industry. And so it's a great opportunity for us to kind of market ourselves um, and put ourselves out there as well. And so uh, she was very excited to to work with you and to advocate on about the the podcast with our other board members and so hopefully you're getting a lot of a good amount of traction with um isha members awesome yeah I, I really appreciate that i you were talking about just like meeting people and running into them i ran into dana she was like the very first person i met at the conference and i didn't know where to go in the uh, mm -hmm. conference center and like she showed me where to go and like got me registered and stuff so that was just a really really cool interaction and then i discovered later on who she was and like how how influential she is in that group and so it was it was really neat to like touch base um again with her and just reconnect so that that those little connections that you make just kind of wandering around in a conference center that can really lead somewhere so that that's really cool so i know it's the the off season for the NFL now, but I'm sure you guys are really ramping up like virtual programming, especially with COVID. And then I think the museum is, is open. Is that correct? To a limited degree? Yeah. So we closed, it'll be about a year now, uh, March 13th. It was, we got, I think the 12th, we got the notification that we had 24 hours to get our stuff and get out of the building. Um, and the museum is located inside Lambeau Field. Uh, and so basically we, you know, took our laptops and went home and we're told we're going to be closed for two weeks and we'll update you if there's more news. Um, and three months later, we finally were able to, to open back up and um, it was challenging because we didn't have any access to the building, any access to the museum, any access to our collection space. And so when we opened back up at the end of June, there were still a lot of restrictions about how many staff could be in the building. Um, and part of that, we were following guidelines from the state, but also mandates from the NFL. And so because football operations was in the building, they wanted to keep kind of the staffing side of things small and the interactions 
with some of the business side of things relatively limited to make sure that the players stayed healthy. And so uh, we, you know, even though we were open, it was very restricted as to how many of us could still be in the building. And so, yeah, we've been open since June, the Hall of Fame, at least the, the museum. So taking a lot of precautions for our staff um, and our guests. Uh, and then we were finally able to open up our, our stadium tour business um, a little bit after that. We can't offer kind of the full slate of tours that we would typically do um, because we don't have a really good way to get guests around the stadium without using elevators, um, which definitely doesn't abide by the social distancing aspect of things. So what we're doing is uh, field viewing options. So we take uh, about 10 guests at a time out into the, the concourse and out into uh, one of the landings of the bowl of the stadium so that they get an opportunity to be you know, inside Lambeau Field for about 15 minutes, talk with our tour guides about Packers history or the history of the stadium. But, you know, it's definitely a kind of a limited option, but it's the best we can do right now with kind of the guidelines and making sure everyone stays safe. And so, you know, we're doing our best when it comes to in-person opportunities, but the the pandemic really provided us with a challenge, but also an opportunity to go virtual with a lot of things. So um, in March, you know, when we were initially like, okay, we're closed for two weeks, let's still brainstorm and plan because we have a feeling this is going to extend. We saw a lot of other museums doing virtual tours of the museum, or um, there were some really interesting things. I think I remember one museum had one of their custodial staff tweeting about um, being in the museum and things like that. And so um, there were some things that we couldn't do that we were kind of jealous about, but we figured, okay, let's Let's see what we've got digitally that we can access on our laptops and you know, flip some things, pivot on some things that we're already doing, some of the resources we already have and see what we can do to, to bring things virtually to Packers fans and do it for free because not only are people stuck at home, but there's a lot of unfortunately people who are struggling with unemployment um, so we don't, we certainly don't want to be disrespectful of that, but we also want to try and bring a little Packers joy to people's lives, um, if we can. And so, um, we hosted programs four days a week. We would do, which was totally new to us and a little bit scary, um, a live Q and A session on Facebook live. And so, uh, some of them were internal. So some of them were myself and some of our, um, admin staff uh, and our curator talking about you know, how we develop an exhibit or the legacy documentary that was developed to commemorate our hundred seasons. But some of it, we were able to secure alumni to, to talk with us live. And so we did Q and A's with alumni and were able to take questions live uh, through Facebook from fans all over the world about their time playing for the Packers, which was a really special experience. We've done alumni tours of the stadium, but um, you know, this was definitely different and we have a little bit of a relationship with some of those alumni already. So that was great, but we got guys like TJ Lang and Tom Crabtree, who's, you know, very active on social media. Um, he's a good follow if you don't follow him already, but even some of, uh, you know, previous generations of players. So we had Lynn Dickey and Paul Kaufman do an interview together because they live um, one of them lives in Kansas and one of them lives in Missouri, but they live about 15 minutes from each other. 
Um, and so they ended up, you know, going to each other's house and doing their interview together. And it was incredible. It was supposed to last a half hour. It went over an hour and they would have continued if I hadn't um, had to kind of stop things. So um, that was a really big and really successful opportunity that we did that Lynn Dickey um, and Paul Kaufman interview had over 65,000 views, uh, which is huge for us. Um, and we were fortunate to have the Packers accounts also kind of help promote that. And then uh, we would do Packers history presentations. So our curator would host kind of PowerPoint presentations, half hour presentations about an aspect of Packers history. I would do presentations about our art collection that we have in the stadium. And then we would have like a family friendly scavenger hunt that we would do um, on Fridays. And so we did those through June. And we've continued to host um, kind of a, a different aspect of that. So in person, we typically host our history night, which is, you know, typically a guest speaker or, you know, exploring some specific aspect of Packers history. And so we've done presentations on holiday games. So the holiday traditions, we've had Pepper Burris, who was our former physical I'm sorry. Athletic uh, trainer. That's it. Thank you. Who and he was here for uh, you know about 30 years, so he came in and did an interview with us. Um, and the most recent one we had was actually on Tuesday night, where we did a guided Hall of Fame tour. So I put my phone on a tripod on a cart and followed our curator around as he talked about how we developed exhibits or some of the behind the scenes knowledge about our artifacts or um, you know the architecture of the museum. So. Um, that was actually very successful. And then we have another one coming up on March 23rd, 6 p.m. Central Time. We have one that'll be hosted by me about the, the art collection that was installed in 2017. We had over 600, I'm sorry, 500 pieces of original artwork and historic photography installed in the stadium um, by an organization called Sports in the Arts. And they've also worked with a number of other ISHA-related organizations. So the 49ers have a collection. The New York Yankees have a collection. The, they worked with the, the Milwaukee Bucks in their new stadium to, to put some artwork there. So they're kind of all over the place, all over different sports. I think the Detroit Red Wings have some. The Minnesota Vikings have some. Um, but basically, we'll take a, a look at the, the 19 artists that we have within the collection and their pieces and talk a little bit about how it relates to Packers history and how they develop their artwork. Cool. I think that's another example of how sports kind of tie into other parts of society is the the art and the photography. Cause you see photographers on the sideline at every game, but then it's like, what happens to those pictures? Where do they get displayed? And it's cool that that group kind of um, helps artists and helps um, the sports organizations kind of collaborate there. So we have a couple issue organizations who are our sports art um, specific. And then, you know, with the advent of social media, it's been much easier, I think, for photographers and artists to share their work. But, uh, you know, we have a couple artists in the collection who are sports illustrators. So um, started out, you know, doing illustrations for like Sports Illustrated, the magazine, and then making a career out of that. Sports and art is not something typically people kind of associate with one another, but it's, you know, definitely something that exists. 
and uh, we're going to take a look at it. Cool. Yeah, that sounds fun. I'd like to talk about now the uh, kind of the museums and the organization's relationship with the city of Green Bay, because that's super special, because Green Bay is fairly small compared to many other sports towns. I know I grew up in Kansas City, and that's a small town too compared to some other ones, but then you have Green Bay that's um, much smaller than even Kansas City. So it's it's really special, and um, the team being publicly owned by um, shareholders is also special, and just kind of that, that Midwestern hospitality that the Packers are able to provide, and then also also the fact that they're such a historic and just long-running excellent organization both on the field and off. So do you have any like fun stories or just anything specific to the city of Green Bay? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Milwaukee, which is the largest city in the state, which, you know, isn't that big. <laughs> um, not to, you know, about the same size probably as Kansas City, but, you know, Green Bay is the third largest city in the state. So that isn't saying much because it's still pretty small. And, you know, we, our tour guides joke that if it weren't for the Packers, Green Bay would just be the toilet paper capital of the world. Um, and so, you know, the Packers have really put Green Bay on the map in a lot of ways. The team was founded in 1919 by, by Curly Lambeau, um, and he was working at the Indian Packing Company at the time. And they sponsored the, the team's uniforms and things like that. So they were that's where we get our name. We get our name from a meatpacking company. Nothing ferocious like a, a lion or you know a bear or anything like that. You know, it, it, they're meat packers, and that's stuck for over a hundred years. But we don't have a mascot. I think we're the only team in the league who doesn't have a mascot. And so those original teams were people from Green Bay and from the community. And so there are a lot of people here in the community who can trace their lineage and their ancestors back to some of those original Packers teams um, and come in asking about them. And so the team, you know, there were a lot of small town teams at that point in the early days of the NFL. The Packers are the third oldest team in the NFL. The Cardinals are the oldest, followed by the Bears and then us. Um, but we're the only team that's still in our original city. And a lot of that has to do with when the NFL was developing. I believe it was in 1927 they eliminated a lot of the small town teams, but there was huge advocacy for keeping Green Bay because of the success of the team. Um, and a lot of that was due to, yes, their on-field success, but also the promotion that Curly Lambeau did as well as George Whitney Calhoun, who was a newspaper editor here in Green Bay at the time and also um, worked for the team. And so, you know, they would spin some tall tales about how the Packers um, were performing, but it worked. Um, and they were known to, you know, when they would go to away cities, host media scrums in their hotel room with a bathtub full of beer and, you know, really schmooze the, the media to give us good publicity. And so, um, you know, we had a lot of on-field success. It was great storyline when we would go and play in New York or even Chicago because it was David versus Goliath kind of idea. But, you know, we were able to stay here in Green Bay. And so not only through that cut from the NFL, but also through a bunch of, you know, financial issues um, early on and with our sponsorships kind of falling through. So uh, the Indian Packing Company was bought out by Acme Packing, who then kind of went defunct. And so we had members of the community step up to sponsor the organization. And then we ended up kind of going public with the, the organization and that's where it comes in that we have shareholders. And so we've had 
shareholders for almost 100 years. And there's been five stock sales throughout our history. Um, some of them were to, to support the team. The more recent ones, because of the way the NFL works um, in 97 and 2011, were really about renovating the stadium and Lambeau Field. So we had to use those funds for something there. But it's the only you know publicly owned organization and the NFL, and it really presents us with a totally unique opportunity. We don't have an owner that we're answering to. We have a president, and the public is very outspoken about their expectations um, about the organization and being heard, and so that's a totally kind of different way to take into account how you run your organization, and, you know, the stadium itself is located essentially in a residential neighborhood. Um, you know, when people come to games, they're parking in the neighborhood and parking in people's yards. It's so integrated into the community itself. Um, and then, you know, you see through a lot of, you know, the 60s where players lived in town. Bart Starr was your neighbor. And so we have a lot of community members that come in and have a story about how they, you know, threw around a football with Paul Horning in, you know, the street of their, their neighborhood. And so everybody seems to have a, a Packers story and the players still live in the community, you know, whether it's Green Bay proper or kind of the quote unquote suburbs, um, you know, they're still around, you know, you'll see them at the movie theater or Target or, you know, anything like that, which is, you know, probably fairly unusual for other communities. And so the museum, really wants to pay homage to that. So we talk a lot about the early history and about kind of the stock sales and, and the more businessy aspect of things, but we also have an entire gallery dedicated to community members and community traditions and our ownership um, to, to commemorate that really unique relationship um, that we have and the expectations that come with that that are a little bit different than maybe another team. That's cool. Yeah. And the over 100 year history of the, the organization, does that make it like harder or easier? Because it's probably both because there's so much history and it's a lot of it's great history with the championships and Bart Starr and Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers and all that. But then like that also presents its own challenges of like, where do we do with all this stuff? And like, how do we best like exhibit these things? from a hundred years ago. So like, what, what is, what is that process kind of like with all the collections and everything that you all have? So to give you a little bit of background about the museum itself, um, I mentioned earlier that it was founded in 1967 um, and it was founded by um, a couple members of the community and they formed an organization that's now known as Packers Hall of Fame Inc. So the museum actually functions collaboratively with two separate organizations. So from 1967 till about the early 2000s, the museum was separate from the stadium and really separate technically from the organization um, and was run by Hall of Fame Inc. And they had a museum across the street from the stadium. In the early 2000s, when the stadium was renovated and we added the atrium, the museum was brought into the, the fold of the organization proper and into the stadium. And so that really changed kind of the operations of things. So um, when the museum was founded, it was originally part of the Brown County Arena, which was you know just a, an arena where they could play basketball or host events or things like that. And so it was just kind of displays and it continued to develop over the years. And the Hall of Fame itself, they basically you know, went to Lombardi and said, can we, you know, display things about the Packers and start inducting Hall of Famers. 
And he said, yeah, go for it. But, you know, just kind of be respectful of my team and, and don't bother my players. <laughs> so, you know, over 50 years later, we're still going strong. Um, and so Hall of Fame Inc. has been collecting since then. And so collectively between us, the Packers and Hall of Fame Inc., we have over 80,000 artifacts that we kind of work with to put on display. We can only put about 5,000 on display at a time. And so with that renovation in 2003, um, or I'm sorry, opening in 2003, we had about 20,000 square feet of space to, to work with Hall of Fame Inc. And, and the Packers to honor the history. And then in, in the stadium got renovated again, and we ended up moving to our current location. So it's about 15,000 square feet of Packers history. And when we did that, there was an opportunity for us to really look hard at the history of the, the team and try and make sure we were getting it right. There is, you know, with 100 years of history comes 100 years of rumors and misinformation. And, you know, I mentioned that Curly Lambeau and George Calhoun had a penchant for being a bit dramatic or dramatizing kind of our, our successes and our history. And so looking at some of those things and with a more critical eye and um, trying to make sure we understood what we could really base on fact and what might be sort of a legend or a tall tale. And so that gives an opportunity as well as doing the, the documentary and our historian Cliff Crystal is currently working on a, a book about Packers history. So we've had a couple opportunities in the last, you know, five, 10 years to really take a, a more critical look at some of the, the things over the last hundred years. And so we work collaboratively. So the Packers it themselves, our organization, runs the museum space, runs the staffing, and then Hall of Fame Inc., we work with really closely with them because they have, you know, the collection of artifacts and they also are the ones who actually do the um, official induction uh, every year. And so it's, it's a collaborative effort to, to make things run for the museum. And then we did start collecting um, some of our own items and artifacts when Brent came on as our curator, start building the collection on our side. So a lot of the more modern things um, are things in our collection, and they have some of the other more historic things. And the challenge with, you know, a hundred year history is those artifacts from the 1930s and 1940s either don't exist anymore or they're buried in someone's basement or, you know, whatever it may be. And so collecting from that era and really making sure that the history is correct from that era can be really challenging. Um, but it's exciting because there's a couple of things, even in the time I've been with the organization that we've, you know, discovered. Um, our 1929 uniform, we always thought was blue because uh, there were only black and white photos. Well, we discovered a picture from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel where they were yellow. And there were doc, you know, there was uh, in newspaper descriptions that they were gold, but we're like, okay, well, all these pictures, they look dark, like they're dark blue. Turns out they aren't, they're gold. So we had to, you know, change that. So history isn't static. You know, a lot of people get bored by history, but there's all these like little mysteries that you're continuing to find out as you work through, you know, some of this stuff. Yeah, that's, that's neat. I didn't know that 
some of those mysteries were still out there because we think like especially sports and things nowadays are so documented and everything is preserved now but back then it wasn't that way um definitely for sure so it's it's cool to like discover as something as simple as like the team's uniform color because like that's a very obvious thing now but then back 70 80 years ago it wasn't so and they weren't necessarily thinking to document that stuff they're like oh we're just you know we're just playing a game we're just a small organization these players weren't getting paid millions of dollars to play football most of them were playing football on the side of having another career or another job so you know to look back 100 years and say that they're legendary people wouldn't really it would be taken with a huge grain of salt if you told them that you know 60 70 years ago as we wrap up here i I want you to talk about the uh, vince lombardi office space um, in the hall of fame and the the interactive table that you've told me about where some of those older artifacts are like preserved and now digitized and they can like look through them as visitors and kind of find like old playbooks and stuff that sounds really really awesome so can you talk about that aspect of the museum yeah. So when we reopened the museum in 2015, one of the aspects that they really wanted to incorporate was heavier use of technology interactives. And I think that's the way the industry is going generally. You know, in the old museum, a lot of the videos that we had, they weren't projection systems. They were a DVD player and a TV. And so you had to restart the DVD if the, it went off. And now much more complicated. And so we have a number of, of interactives throughout the museum. Some of them more effective than others. You know, we had to take out, we had a team database, which basically you could scroll through any team member back to 1919 and, you know, look at the rosters and look at profiles and things like that. And it was just really complicated to keep updated, really complicated to not just the actual information and the data, but also the software and the hardware. But, you know, there are some pieces in there that are really effective. So we ended up actually taking that team database out and finding another option for um, doing interactives. But the the one that we're talking about here, um, the, the Lombardi office. So one of the most popular exhibits in the old Hall of Fame space was a replication of Vince Lombardi's office. You could sit in his desk, you can answer the telephone and all kinds of things. And so when they built the new Hall of Fame, they actually found some photographs of his office space and replicated it even more closely to what it would have actually been like. And one of the things we added was this big conference table. And the conference table is actually an interactive. So we have thousands and thousands of artifacts from the Vince Lombardi era and Vince Lombardi himself. And we're really fortunate in that aspect, but it's really challenging to find physical space to display all those things. So a good portion of them were digitized and then load it into this interactive table. So you can click on it and open up old family videos. You can open up playbooks and look at, and kind of scroll through his playbooks. You can look at letters that he was sent by fans, telegrams he was sent um, after championships, all kinds of things from that era you can open up and look at more closely. And it not only a really cool thing because it's integrated into the space in a way that is historically accurate and interesting, but it allows us to display a lot more content um, without eating up a ton of physical space. And, and I just, it makes me really happy when people are interacting with it. I will say in some contrast to that, you know, we're now, we've been open for, it'll be six years in August and, you know, we're constantly updating and things like that, but especially with technology, like I said, it can be challenging to make sure that the content is up to date, the software, the hardware, all that stuff. And 
So if you have something that's really effective, like this Lombardi table, it's great, but it can also be real, real pain. And sometimes, you know, doing a practical um, exhibit or something, a practical interactive can be just as effective. And so we're going back and looking at some of our exhibits and updating our exhibits to keep uh, with the times and with the industry and looking at how, you know, some, some of these things that we thought were going to be really great in our museum, they're, they're good, but they aren't, guests aren't interacting with them in the way that we thought they would. So how can we update our exhibit to be more effective and be more interesting and whether that's a technology application or a practical application? Yeah, that it, it like opens up more accessibility for people, I would say, to like have people come into the office and then sit down at his desk, but then you can go up to the table and like really look for like family videos. It's cool that those are integrated and pictures and all of that. I would love to go through like the old playbooks and see like how how things have really changed, but then some things probably haven't changed from um, the mm-hmm. 60s. So um, yeah, that's that's really, really awesome, Justine. Can you kind of right. talk about, or go ahead. It, it, it's able, it gives you an immersive experience and that I, I'm really a big fan of in museum design. You know, you're in his office, but you're able to interact with something that's very now. Yeah, kind of the best of both because you're you're in that like 60s. I'm at some of the furnitures like from the oh, 60s, yeah. but then you're also like using a touch screen, which Vince Lombardi had no concept of. So that's that's really, right. really cool to mm-hmm. kind of bring both of those together. Cool. So can you kind of talk about where the Packers Hall of Fame can be found, whether in person or online? I know you guys have a great website and social media presence and are constantly doing um, different things with your content. Yeah. So the the Hall of Fame itself is located inside the atrium of Lambeau Field. It's two floors, 15,000 square feet of Packers and NFL history um, because those two are tied together very much. And as far as online is considered, we are we have our, our website, PackersHOFandTours.com. And so you can go there and, and look at, you know, get a taste of some of our temporary exhibits, look at our tour options, any of our programming that we have coming up. And then we're also on a number of different social media channels. So we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And not everything that's posted on Facebook is posted on Instagram. So if you're, you know, tuning in to all three, you might get a little bit different content. And so we have, you know, our Facebook lives that we did last summer are still on Facebook. So if you want to go check those out, you certainly can. Some of our history presentations are still on our website. So you can check those out as well. So yeah, that virtual programming, some of that is still available to check out if people are interested. Awesome. Well, this has been great, Justine. I know I've learned a lot and I think there was so much that we didn't even cover as well. So I think we can touch base again, like in August sometime when uh, football season is coming up. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, I would I would love that. So um, once again, thank you for your time. And if you're in Green Bay or in the Wisconsin area, be sure to visit Lambeau Field and check out the Packers Hall of Fame. After Justine and I discussed the Vince Lombardi replica office in the Packers Hall of Fame, This week's overtime segment is about the Packers' legendary head coach. Vince Lombardi was born Vincent Thomas Lombardi in 1913 in Brooklyn, New York, as the oldest of five children. He graduated magna cum laude from Fordham, where he played football. Vince then became a high school football coach, and then spent time assisting at Fordham and at West Point. Then the New York football giants hired him to be an assistant coach, where he helped lead them to five winning seasons in the 1950s. He was then hired by the Packers in 1959, to serve as their head coach and general manager. And at that point, the Packers hadn't had a winning season in 11 years. It's pretty hard to believe. As you might imagine, Vince demanded absolute dedication and excellence from his players and was very quotable. Winning is not a sometimes thing, he said. It is an all the time thing. 
You don't do things right once in a while. You do them right all the time. Vince Lombardi coached the Packers for nine seasons, then resigned in 1968 to focus on his general manager position. During his nine seasons as coach, the Packers won 75% of their games. Later, he then coached Washington for one season, leading them to their first winning season in 14 years. So over his 10 seasons, he never had a losing one, and also won nine out of his 10 playoff games. Vince Lombardi, over a seven-year period with the Packers, won five NFL championships, including the first two Super Bowls. That made three straight NFL championships between 1965 and 1967, a feat that has never been replicated. Vince Lombardi sadly passed away from colon cancer at the age of 57 in the year 1970 and was posthumously inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1971, the same year the Super Bowl trophy was named in his honor. He then was inducted into the Packers Hall of Fame in 1975. You can find the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame in the Lambeau Field Atrium in Green Bay or online at PackersHOFandTours.com. In the show notes, you can find links to the museum's website and social media pages. As we mentioned near the end of our conversation, the Packers Hall of Fame is hosting an art collection presentation on March 23rd. Be sure to check that out if you're interested. A link to more information is in the show notes. Thanks again to Justine for being my second guest. I hope you enjoyed episode two of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Hallowed Ground on your podcast app of choice so you don't miss our next one. Also, leaving a five-star rating and review helps this podcast gain exposure on those various apps. Thanks in advance. Until next time, sports fans.